and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your periodic look at the world of evidence. I'm Helen McDonald, Research Integrity Editor at the BMJ, and today I'm joined by Juan Franco, GP and Editor-in-Chief of the EBM Journal. Hi, Juan. Hi, Helen. Hi, John. And with and also by Joe Ross, US Editor for the BMJ. Hi, Joe. Hi, Helen. Hi, Juan. Nice to be here. This week, we've got a packed episode for you. COVID doesn't go away, and Joe's going to give us the lowdown of what has been published since we were last on air. Another problem is recurrent urinary tract infections in females, and Juan is going to take us through an interesting trial that's just been published um, to try and deal with this problem better. And finally, we're going to have a look at a paper in the kind of equality and diversity arena, I would say. Uh, A year or so ago, we had a theme issue in the BMJ on racism and medicine, and it was really hard to get some research papers submitted for the issue. So I was really pleased to see this paper, and we'll tell you more about it later in the episode. Joe, let's start with you and our update on COVID. Thanks, Helen. Well, I mean, our listeners are not going to be surprised that the world of COVID, uh, despite some government's protestations, uh, has not gone away. And there's been ample research done to try to continue to better understand what we can do, public health efforts, who's most at risk, issues around long COVID. I mean, the, the litany of papers that continue to be published is long. Um, in the BMJ, we've had a number of studies that I think are worth people's time and attention. We had one interesting study uh, looking at a cohort of patients in Italy to try to understand the timing and of uh, immunity and how it wanes. Uh, we had another nice study uh, using data from a group in the United States looking at uh, essentially long-term uh, healthcare utilization of patients who've been affected, uh, who've been infected with COVID, and um, how they continue to come back for care at higher rates than other patients. Again, not quite long COVID, but gets at the sort of persistent risk that that patients who've been infected are experiencing and the burden of the disease. But I think that the probably the most interesting uh, study that we published was one of those kind of big data studies. Uh, by a large group uh, in Europe. Is this most interesting or most interesting to you, Joe, because it is a big data study? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not interesting to me just because it's big data, but I think it's, it's important because what they try to do is characterize the adverse uh, events or the risks associated with the vaccine, specifically immune-mediated neurological events. And the reason why this is so important is because Um, Across the world, there's been, I think, amplified concerns about the safety of these vaccines. And I think, unfortunately, disinformation campaigns will pick up little signals or little pieces of information, take them out, put them out of context, run with it, scare people. Uh, And 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 of course, in turn, leads to people who would otherwise benefit from the vaccine and perhaps not get sick from the, the infection, not take the vaccine. So can you describe what these events are? Oh, yeah, yeah. So let me tell you about the study. Indeed, Helen, you're like, I'm, I'm just trying to set the stage here, get people interested. So maybe while they're listening, they're going to go to the website and pull up the paper. I'm giving them time. Uh, no, so th- this was a great study. So what they did is they took data uh, from both the United Kingdom and Spain, large hospital, you know, uh, population based data sets. And they looked at all the people who got various uh, COVID vaccines, both the 
the AstraZeneca vaccine, the, uh, the, the Pfizer vaccine, and the Moderna vaccine, um, and, uh, and the J&J vaccine. And they looked at, at, as those vaccinations got rolled out, and they looked at the risk of uh, four specific uh, neurological outcomes, Bell's palsy, encephalomyelitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and transverse myelitis. Now, all of these are very rare events. So you would have to uh, you know, try to understand the, you know, the relative risk for them in a large population. But these types of neurological uh, adverse, uh, these kind of neurological outcomes are also really common with viruses. And that's what makes it really hard to tease out, right? Like what, it's kind of a chicken or an egg problem. And so they looked at all of these people getting these vaccines, and they also looked at people who got infected by the virus itself before they were vaccinated. And what they found was that um, they kind of what they what they do is they sort of estimate what you could call background rates. What are the rates in the populations separate from the vaccinations and, and separate from getting infected? And they show that they had much higher than infected. Uh, much higher than expected rates among people who got infected, but not higher than expected rates among people who got the vaccine. So to me, you know, this is one of those, you know, it's a lot of work to do a study like this, pull a lot of information together. I hope that people read this and find it reassuring. It's the best study to date, looking at these kind of neurological events after vaccination. And uh, like with other uh, adverse events that people have been worried about with the vaccine, they are far more common and it's you're, you're more, far more likely to be harmed by getting infected than you are by getting vaccinated. And so uh, this, this, is, this is why I thought this was such an important study, not just the big data. <laughs> Juan, has he sold it to you? For me, uh, yeah, I think it's important, uh, especially uh, I don't. I don't know if you remember early in the vaccination rollout, there was this worry about Bell's palsy, and and the, one of the trials was stopped by a case of trans, uh, transverse myelitis. Is it? And uh, and so there the, there there were grounds for concern in this in this arena. That doesn't mean that this. I mean, typically these these neurological syndromes are if you grab any medical textbook from from twenty years ago are are associated with with vaccines uh, and it doesn't mean that the that these vaccines cannot uh, trigger one of these syndromes but at least it's not a cons it's not a major concern compared to the, the natural infection and I think that's that the way uh, Joe um, framed it is, is, is a very very the most reassuring message we can get out of the study um, well, you know, I think studies like this are really critical, right? And, and it doesn't mean that we're, we're kind of done studying uh, the, the effect of the vaccines and the safety of the vaccines. But what, one of the things that I found most impressive about the pandemic is the sort of large scale collaborative efforts that are being done to study the, the disease itself and, and the vaccines. And the, these kinds of efforts are, gonna, are going to continue. And each time a new study like this comes out, we, we learn a little bit more. And we actually probably know more about this disease and these vac vaccines than any other vaccine in the history uh, of medical product regulation, right? I mean, like we just, these have been so well studied. So uh, hopefully people find that reassuring and uh, it, it's, it's another good study for in the BMJ.
So next on our agenda, Juan, it's you and this trial that you have been reading for us on recurrent UTI and the use of methenamine hipparate for recurrent urinary tract infections um, in females. Tell us a bit about it and uh, what got you interested. Uh, well, my, my main interest, I think that uh, every clinician uh, knows that it's very challenging uh, uh, recurrent urinary tract infection uh, is very frustrating, and the alternatives are not ideal. Ideally, you there, there are different types of strategies: taking an antibiotic every day, or taking an antibiotic uh, for each uh, new case. Um, it's getting it's very frustrating, and and they, it's quite refreshing. First of all, it's quite refreshing a trial uh, to assist decision making, and a trial that has uh, sort of this pragmatic design. Uh, this was um, in, in the clinical settings. They randomized 240 women to uh, uh, methenamine and uh, antibiotics prophylaxis, and uh, and it's a non. It's, it's important to highlight that it's a non inferiority trial. So they tried to prove that methenamide uh, would could at least uh, be as uh, effective uh, with one episode per year difference. Um, as, a, as a maximum non-inferiority margin uh, compared to antibiotics. So they follow up, uh, follow up women for 12 months, uh, for 18 months, but the primary outcome was at 12 months, and the, the incidence per person year was 0.89 in the antibiotic group and 1.38 in the methanamide group, uh, which uh, was uh, the difference is... Uh, was below the 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 one uh, that was the non inferiority threshold for saying that 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 could be an uh, an alternative option, and without significant uh, differences in uh, adverse events, which is also important. They also did another exploratory analysis on uh, on resistant on on how much resistant bacteria they they got in each group, but since the swabbing it was optional. That that results are more difficult to interpret because they have fewer samples. Um, so basically, it's I think it's good to have this on uh, on on the agenda. There's there was a systematic review that the author cited that um, that said that we needed more trials, and this is yet another trial that adds a little bit more of a mix to the idea that perhaps we can add non-antibiotic options uh, for women um, with recurrent urinary tract infections. Thanks, Juan. That's a nice summary. So I I get the feeling that we didn't really know um, if this was going to be an acceptable kind of treatment before this particular trial. And I sense from your answer that you're still not entirely convinced that we know that now. <laughs> uh, I mean, the confidence interval is still a little bit wide and it's... Um... And I'm, I'm I'm quite skeptical of saying that we always we can have a definite answer uh, from a non-inferiority trial. Um, perhaps um, uh, we need a little bit more experience with with that uh, with this, and uh, and especially in the sense of adverse events, the the, the study was not entirely powered to, to take that. Uh, but I think that that you need to take when you when when guidelines consider which options are available for recurrent tract infection, you need to consider not only the evidence of trials, but other, uh, other aspects, uh, including antibiotic resistance and, and perhaps acceptability. It is, uh, I, I should say, it is quite of a 
fertile for a woman to take the drug twice a day to, with methanamide twice a day compared to antibiotics. So there are other factors, uh, things to factor in. And and for a, a topic like urinary tract, uh, recurrent urinary tract infection, it's not very straightforward. Uh, the long term, of, for example, uh, uh, um, um, effects of these drugs in the sense that sometimes women have a period of one year or two years in where they have uh, recurrent infections and then they stop altogether and they don't need any medication and then they go on again. So we don't know in these situations whether this medication is effective or not. So there's still a lot of nuance for for mm, for, yeah. for some for the clinical scenario. Maybe enough to start having discussions with women about these drugs. Um, Joe, what what were you about to say? Well, uh, the the points you guys are both making are exactly what I wanted to emphasize. It was actually a pretty interesting conversation on the sort of the research editors when we were talking about this paper because there are clear limitations. It's kind of a smallish study for a non-inferiority study. The but and the alternative, the methamphetamine treatment is is a little bit more of a burden, right? It's twice a day instead of an antibiotic daily. It actually, you know, it, it did not meet its uh, the the threshold for not for being non-inferior, but there was a difference of a half of a you know an infection, right? Uh, you know, over the twelve months, that might be important to women. Like all of these things, kind of now can be used. One, the reason we liked this paper is it provides useful practical information that can inform women and their clinicians as they're as they're making a decision on what to do. Like some people don't want to take an antibiotic every day. Methamphetamines is kind of a funny kind of antiseptic, but not an antimicrobial pill. It's it, it's in this sort of weird nether world of sort of in the way it works. And so this might be a nice alternative. But, you know, it, it, again, I felt like this trial was in the spirit of uh, making women more informed about treatment options, um, even with its imperfections. And yes, we'd like to see more studies like this, which is part of the reason uh, why we why we publish it. It prompts more research. Well, we look forward to hearing from you, maybe listeners, about what you're going to do in your practice, um, having listened to the discussion and maybe taken away the paper. So the last paper I wanted us to discuss today was one that just went up on bmj.com, which describes the association between mistreatment, burnout, and having multiple marginalized identities during undergraduate medical education. So this is a paper from the US, and it looks at more than 30,000 graduating medical students in 2016 and 2017 which I think is perhaps just because they ask these students a bunch of questions rather than there's something magical about those years. And at some point in their medical school history, um, this group of students had identified their gender, their race, ethnicity, and their sexual orientation on their medical school records, which is either listed um, in terms of sexual orientation as lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And the outcomes that they look at are... um, burnout, which is measured on two scales of exhaustion and disengagement. Um, And they try to account for other elements of mistreatment and discrimination. So the thing that's original about this study is that there are a few studies out there which explore various of those um, variables we mentioned, so gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation, and then looking at outcomes on mistreatment and burnout. 
But the thing that's interesting about this paper is that it explores people who have several of those variables altogether. So it might look at uh, women who are also lesbian and from a um, minority ethnic group. And this gets at this uh, theory, which was called intersectionality. Um, And the idea here is that you're building a better understanding about the simultaneous influence of sex, race, ethnicity and sexual orientation um, all together at the same time. And I guess if you just cut to the chase and say, really, what does this study discover? Is that it finds that a higher proportion of students with multiple marginalised identities report mistreatment and discrimination. So students who were female non-white and from an LGB background had the most recurrent experiences of discrimination during medical school. Um, But drilling down into the detail of that, I have to say I didn't find that straightforward in the paper. So I'm going to shortcut us to Juan, who found or pointed out to me that table two, it's always table two, I feel, (laughs) that has some um, interesting information in it. So Juan, pick pick out some of the um, statistics which people might want to hear. So uh, uh, that there, it is true that there are many many numbers, and you want to explore them carefully. But if you want, if you want to take um, the some someone some numbers that might uh, draw your attention is, for example, the the recurrent experience of multiple types of mistreatments, the reported one in uh, female, non-white, lesbian, gay, or bisexual was nearly thirty percent, nearly thirty percent. This population suffer recurrent experience of multiple types of mistreatment, whereas this uh, uh, this number was seven point eight percent in male white heterosexual. So that's a big gap. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, and and you can see this uh, all across different metrics. Um, uh, perhaps it's easier for, for for our listeners to 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 read uh, the table. Uh, but for the main measurements of mistreatment, discrimination, and exhaustion, uh, they found this uh, this gap between um, white and non-white and uh, heterosexual and uh, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. Um, so um, yeah, the the numbers are, are quite striking, and and in the sense, I mean, we. We might we might have anticipated this uh, uh, from from our our, structu- uh, the, our understanding of the structural um, biases and and in in in, in different institutions, but it, it's it's very interesting the, the the endeavor the authors uh, made to quantify it and and uh, from a national survey. Yeah, uh, if I could jump in, I mean, first of all. Major bias alert. These are some of my colleagues from Yale, including the senior author, Dowen Broatwright, is one of the just the leading scholars in this area trying to understand the impact of race, ethnicity and other, um, you know, uh, other marginalized identities on uh, the healthcare workforce. That's really been the focus of his study. And this is like, you know, such an incredible feat to try to address these issues of intersectionality. Um, which is just to say, Helen, it's a, this is a term that um, was coined by the legal scholar uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, who's uh, she's the, the like strong advocate. She's the one who developed the concept of critical race theory. And, and the idea of intersectionality, intersectionality is right that we, there are multiple components to our identities 
that can have varying effects on our perceptions, uh, uh, you know, purported advantages or the discrimination against us. And so, you know, this this study tries to operationalize that kind of intersectionality, looking at medical students of their various identities, you know, rates of discrimination, rates of mistreatment. And one of the things, Juan, that I thought was so interesting, and yes, these tables are complicated and, you know, people have to really sort of comb through them. But if you were to look simply at, for instance, mistreatment in that table too, there's, you know, kind of very little difference that you see between uh, whites and non-whites, right? But when you look at the intersection, uh, the unique identity groups and how people's uh, sex and sexual orientation also plays into those uh, those experiences of mistreatment, it changes things around, you know, quite strongly. And so this is why I think this type of a lens for this type of research is so critical. I suppose that's an interesting perspective on the numbers. For many people out there, I guess this is um, this chimes with personal experiences that they've had, things that they've experienced through their medical training and perhaps continue to experience um, during their clinical working lives. Do either of you have um, thoughts to share on that? Well, um, I think that... Um it sort of resonates uh, differently and you, you we must understand uh, uh, that this is framed in uh, in the US and this might have different implications in different countries for example i come from argentina and um and and and, and the, the our perception of of how ethnicities are, are the the makeup of ethnicities is different and and there are other factors that Perhaps this study did not consider that they are within the spectrum of intersectionality. For example, the socioeconomic background in which uh, you come to the university that may also p play a role on how you experience your your relationship to peers. And um, I think that we we all have different stories uh, of, of of good and bad experience in the university. But uh, we, we I think the papers reflect in, is inviting us to reflect on how how many of those perhaps bad experiences or situations that has put us uh, through a burnout or 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 we felt or we felt not so good had to do with how we identify ourselves because sometimes when you go to medical school you said okay i'm going to i'm going to suffer because i i this is a very difficult career you need to study day and night you need to be very responsible to take care of your patients. So I'm going to take whatever whatever it takes. So if they mistreat me, and, and, and as medical students tend to be sort of this um, over-adapted, overfitted, uh, overachievers, and 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 you can get a, a lot of mistreatment. And 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 this paper invites you to say, okay, uh, first of all, it's ideal if no one is mistreated, right? That's the ideal scenario. <laughs> but how? How much of the mistreatment you're receiving is because who you are and who identify uh, how you identify, and um, and I think that it also um, it would be interesting to see um, to link this with the qualitative research and uh, and and there are different moments in medical education. It's not the same when you're studying the biology. It's not the same when you're doing a clinical rotation. It's not the same when you're doing a, a male predominant uh, surgical rotation. So. Um, there, there, there are a lot of areas in which sort of these structural biases can be tackled, and probably they will require different strategies. Yeah, no, Juan, I think you've put it really well. I mean, 
Um, I'm a white male heterosexual, so I'm an individual who carries, you know, I have the privilege in these environments, right? And, and you, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you know, my friends, my colleagues, my peers aren't experiencing it, these mistreatments, this, these, these discriminations. And so papers like this, research like this, you know, makes clear the, the burden and, you know, that's put on minoritized populations. You know, we all, right, it's medical school training is a, still unfortunately in t- times in a, an abusive you know training environment and there's ev- everyone is experiencing kind of that hardship but some people are experiencing it worse and so we, we have to work together we have to create support mechanisms so that we don't lose students out of the pipeline that they continue to pursue these careers you know these are you know incredible folks and uh, you want them to be you know to finish their training and, and and to move on into the into the field and and make the difference that they want to make that, you know, that, they, that led them to apply to school in the beginning. So the, the, this, this paper, I think, lays bare the challenges that are ahead of us, you know, particularly in the U.S. medical school system. And it has a nice discussion towards the end of the paper around um, how, how you might move forward to provide some of that support uh, that you mentioned, Joe, um, so that you don't lose people, which I guess is... I suppose what you would hope would come from this paper that those people who are in charge of academic curriculums and student support services um, will look hard at this kind of information, look hard at the services that they provide and how well those services might might match up. Um, I hope that it also might inspire other universities and nations um, to look at their own student populations, because as you say, Juan, the issues are different um, in, in many medical schools. And sometimes they're quite radically different, even within um, countries or the same cities, different medical schools can have very different um, makeups in terms of the demographics of the students who they serve. Yeah. And these data, you know, they're, they're from five years ago in the United States. And obviously so much has changed around awareness of these issues, you know, with the the George Floyd riots in the summer of 2020, and so much that, that, you know, people have now thinking more about these issues. I just can't wait until Dowen Boatwright, the senior author of this paper, starts, you know, taking over medical schools and revamping the curriculum and, and so that putting us all in a better position to succeed. Yeah, and there's also room for follow-up in the sense that they, the authors did the best, best thing they could do with the data they had, but uh, uh, we need to think about many other aspects diversity perhaps in, in medical school um i don't know the, the 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 shape of your body uh, or even if you are gay for example i was lucky enough to be out of the closet throughout my medical school and 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 people were okay with that but a lot of people could not come out because of the of the uh, of the of the, um, the 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 tradition of the school they 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 have a negative experience and and that might not be reflected on a, a mistreatment, but you might su- still suffer for being a closeted uh, person throughout medical school, and 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 you just didn't make the mark of the paper. Uh, so there are so many angles that could be captured in follow-up studies, and and as you said, uh, Helen, um, we would welcome if the the of course they're they're good methodology, but <laughs> they could be submitted.
At the beginning of the episode, we came to Joe to give us the update uh, on all things COVID. And one of the things I like having, um, sorry, one of the reasons I like inviting you on the show, Juan, is that we get an opportunity to have an update on the world of EBM. Um, and I thought that this little opinion piece that we found on bmj.com um, was an interesting starting point. First, uh, two disclaimers. Well, first of all, of course, I'm a fan of EBM. That's why I'm part of the journal. I'm the editor of the journal and I apply for that. And, it's good that you like your job. And, and the second <laughs> disclaimer is that I I do value the, the work of the authors. They, in the, in the competing instances, they, they, they talk about study uh, 329, that is this peroxidine study that was reanalyzed because it had some problems. And... And I must say that I fully support the, the initiative of the authors of, of, of proposals. For example, they say liberation of regulations from drug company funding, taxation of imposed on pharmaceutical companies to allow public funding on independent trials. Uh, so there are many initiatives that may seem le- more or less radical, but are aligned with the idea of getting good evidence out and transparency. Perhaps I'm a little bit troubled by the framing evidence-based medicine has been corrupted because people are... People are corrupted, and people and 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 many of these initiatives were uh, proposed uh, by people EBM advocates. So I wouldn't be so unfair with evidence-based medicine, which is uh, sort of the framework in many in which many of these positive initiatives come uh, come through. Um, and I do think that there there are advancements, even when the with if you take uh, for example. This, the high scrutiny with which you, the trials for for vaccines have uh, gone through the the, the first uh, two years in the pandemic, uh, you have good examples of people using the traditional tools in in EBM uh, and and trying to disentangle uh, what works and what doesn't work. If you take for example the guidelines, the COVID guidelines. Uh, uh, and and the uh, remdesivir situation early in the pandemic, what a difference that was from uh, oseltamivir in the influenza uh, pan- pandemic, right? We the uh, oseltamivir, uh, the, the the scandal of of the drug company uh, hiding data and and government stockpiling uh, oseltamivir. It did not happen in this. Uh, this time, uh, each treatment was heavily scrutinized, and we had good uh, adaptive trials, such as, the, uh, and in, in, for example, the, including the, the recovery uh, trial that tested many drugs. So I think that these platform trials, for example, are, are, were some of the innovations that were um, uh, rolled out during the pandemic uh, in, in high scale that allowed us allows us to be a little bit more optimistic than, than the, the, the framing of the opinion piece. Uh, so, um, I feel like you're about to come to a but. <laughs> no, no, I guess that, uh, I guess that um, it's, uh, I think that the, the major problems with EBM are probably not focused on this part. I think that the authors raise a good point, but I think one of the things that is, EBM is being challenged is whether RCTs and are, are are the best way to prove that uh, interventions uh, work at the especially in policy in policy making. That is something that in the it was very clear in the pandemic that there were different types of sites and 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 uh, and 
and and camps and 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 the idea. So you mean, Juan, look, that in in essence, the RCT is very good if you've got drug A versus drug B, and you want to work out which one of those works, or maybe you even want to test multiple drugs. But when things get a bit more messy, I think you're alluding to things like masks and the non-pharmaceutical interventions that that maybe we need to either get a bit more pragmatic and nimble in doing some RCTs on those things or um, cast our net a bit wider in terms of the evidence. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. Uh, we need to diversify what type of evidence we take in consideration for decision-making and, and at all the levels. Because, for example, if you take, uh, if you take this, the, one, the, the urinary tract infection trial, that's a trial, the typical trial that EBM, EBMers will like, will love, and we tend to read. But what, do, what are the preferences of women in terms of taking a, a drug twice a day uh, uh, compared to taking an antibiotic? Would people know what an antibiotic is, what it entails, what it can ca- cause? Uh, and those uh, type of research could also inform decision making. And at the policy level uh, uh, for for public health, things get much more messy. Using your words, which I think were were, were quite illustrative of, of of the situation, and we need to diversify even more. And and I think that if evidence based medicine needs to catch up and update its the tools, the toolkit we have to incorporate this diverse evidence. Um, and I think it, it it can it is possible because it it already has. I mean, uh, evidence medicine is increasingly uh, accepting uh, in, 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 in increasing the toolkit to appraise observational data or multi- compare multiple interventions with network analysis. So the tools that that we have to appraise the evidence are growing uh, every day. And so your dreams are coming true. Well, I, that's that's your word. I don't know. I'm not that optimistic. But yeah, I will say something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so this piece was more about problems with the E in EBM, the evidence part, uh, perhaps. And Joe, I think there was quite a bit of commercialization. There were also quite a few folks like you at academic medical institutions um big universities under under criticism there how did you how did you read it well were they criticizing me i didn't read it that way (laughs) 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 well i don't know i mean these authors raise a number of important points around the corruption or you could even really just say the commercialization of the clinical research enterprise right and there are multiple issues at play, many reasons to be skeptical, many reasons to be concerned when, you know, financial forces are are driving and motivating clinical trials, what trials, what diseases we study, which products get studied, you know, we, you know, industry plays a massive role uh, in the the clinical research enterprise. But to me, you know, the illusion of evidence-based medicine to take their title is not that, you know, all research is corrupt. To me, it's that there's going to be evidence to answer every clinical question that we need addressed. And and there's not going to be an RCT for everything. We're going to have to think through, you know, ways to provide and generate complementary evidence through other means besides the randomized controlled trial. You know, Juan started talking about observational methods. And it's, you know, there's, it, there's a real sort of... <laughs> There's a long list of, of, of ways to do research better. But I think one of the things just to take seriously is, you know, what happens when 
the research infrastructure is driven so much by profit motive finances. You know, how do we protect against that? There's ample examples of the, you know, in the past that, you know, like Juan talked about, hidden data, data not being published, trials being designed in, in a sort of unfair or biased way to, to show that a product is going to be effective when it may not be. And, you know, we as clinicians and our patients are the ones who suffer from that, right? Because then they're, we're paying for things that may not be effective, but can still, uh, you know, induce harm. And that harm can be actual adverse effects from the therapies or can just be, you know, you're paying and experiencing the burden of treatment when you don't need it. And so, you know, it, it's complicated and, and we, we shouldn't kind of rest on our laurels and we should be thinking about ways for the academic community to being becoming more impartial. I think one of the, the things that these authors raise is like, hey, do you guys realize that, you know, many in the academic community are well more aligned with the commercial interests than the patient's interests? And, and, and that's just not right. And we have, to, we have to figure out corrective mechanisms for that. Sounds like a role for EBM, doesn't it? Well, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. It's all we have time for, at least. You can find all of the links to the papers that we've discussed in the episode description. And my huge thanks to Juan and to Joe for reading all those papers for you and summarising them. If you've enjoyed this episode, do follow us, subscribe to us, leave us feedback. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Take care out there. <laughs>